Welcome to this edition of Church Grammar. Today on the episode, we have Alan Noble. Alan Noble teaches English at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's also the founder of Christ and Pop Culture, a popular website on the intersection of Christianity and culture. Done a ton of other work in culture and politics commentary as of late. Has a book called Disruptive Witness that we'll talk about in this episode today. Alan and I talk about Disruptive Witness, the book. We talk about politics. We talk about the future of evangelicalism and how our culture is going and how we're engaging in that culture. We also talk about living in Shawnee, Oklahoma, which is where Oklahoma Baptist University is, and how the mall there is the weirdest place I may have ever been in my life. We also talk about C.S. Lewis and Flannery O'Connor, whether or not they are both overrated in the Christian world. We both kind of agree yes and kind of agree no. Talk about a whole range of other random things like his fandom of the Oklahoma City Thunder and his growing up in California. So I hope you will enjoy this conversation with him. This episode is brought to you by B&H Academic, bhacademic.com, and the Christian Standard Bible. You can find out more about them at csbible.com. And our conversation with Alan is upcoming, but first, no big deal. Here with Alan Noble. Oh, Alan Noble. Is that uh, is that Orville Redenbacher? Is that what is the O? Be Oliver. It is Orville. It <laughs> it's is Orville, Orville, but it's not Or Orville. It's actually Orval. O R V A L. Orval. Yeah, it's a French. It's French. Orval Redenbacher. Nope. <laughs> Alan, why don't you uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us about your family, your place of employment, all the other fifty random things that you're doing. So I am <clears throat> Orville Alan Noble. I was uh, born and raised in Lancaster, California, Southern California, the desert of Southern California. I didn't take you for a California uh, guy. Is, is, it, is the desert in California different than the uh, than San Diego? Does that raise you different? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so the desert communities, they tend, like, they're built around aerospace primarily. Uh, so they're more conservative. Mm. And they're also, they're also a lot of sort of desperation. They're kind of, empty places. This explains so much about who you are, doesn't it? It does. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, uh, let's see. I was very homeschooled my whole life. Uh, we had goats. Uh, as all home, true homeschoolers do, we had goats. I had no public or I'd like to say, uh, government schooling until I went to the community college in Southern California. Uh, so jumped right into the deep end, I guess. I started out with an acting class. Anyway, we won't talk about that. I would love to talk about the acting class. I, I'm, you probably would want to talk about it. I was 15 and a half. <laughs> did not know what I was getting myself into. First class I take is the theater department. I had no idea that there was like a theater culture. Like like there are mm. theater people and they have like a certain aesthetic. And I was just like, I like movies. I'll take this acting class. <laughs> so that was interesting. <clears throat> anyway, I uh, have a PhD in English from Baylor University. Um, I have a wife and three kids and I work at Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma. So you are uh, a couple of things about you. Uh, you're an Oklahoma city thunder fan, right? Yeah, absolutely. How long have you, how long have you been? Did you, did you, were you a Sonics fan or did you just adopt them when they came to Oklahoma? Because so, when I met you, 
yeah. the first time you were in Waco and you were yeah. already a Thunder fan. So where did that come from? How did that happen? Yeah, especially because I'm from Southern California. So why aren't I a Laker fan? So here's yeah. the, here's the story. My family, we don't watch any sports at all. First of all, we didn't have television because the world um, would get us. <laughs> um, so we didn't have television for a long time, like, you know, cable or anything. Um, and then when we did get it, just my parents, they don't watch sports. And so I thought sports Orlando was not athletic. I turns out I'm still not athletic. Uh, and so, um, I just wasn't interested in, until I went to Baylor and we made a six, a sweet 16 run in, I don't know what it would have been like, uh, 2010, 2009, 2010. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would watch like for the players on like network television. And then like the next day I would pass them in the hall going to class. And mm. there was a buzz around campus and it was a kind of excitement I hadn't experienced before this like communal aspect of supporting these players that you really felt a relationship to because you saw them. It wasn't like some abstract team. It was like, Oh, these are, these are our guys and you know, you want them to win. And, and when the tournament ended, I was kind of bummed and cause I enjoyed, I enjoyed basketball. It was fast. It was fun. It wasn't like football, which is four and a half hours, which I did not have time for as a grad student who was teaching. <laughs> um, uh, and so I was like, man, I need a fix. Like this is, I like this basketball thing. So then I turned on, uh, maybe this was 2009 then. Cause I turned on the NBA front. Uh, it was the NBA playoffs. Um, and this was like Oklahoma city's breakout year where they took the Lakers to, I want to say seven games or something, or they mm-hmm. won several games against Kobe, Kobe's Lakers. And the Lakers went on to win the championship that year. And everyone was talking about how great Durant, um, uh, uh, the cupcake and, and Westbrook were and, and, and Harden <laughs> at the time. And, and it was just, that was it a was nice cool. shot. Yeah. Yeah. I got to have that in there. Yeah. And, and, and it was a weird thing for me because I didn't have a team to support. So I was like, I'm just going to like who is fun to watch. And Oklahoma City Thunder was fun. I liked the Celtics. They were fun to watch. Um, I even liked at the time, I liked LeBron in Cleveland. I mean, he was fun to watch too uh, until he went to Miami. So so I, I chose teams years ago based on who I thought was fun. And then I moved to Oklahoma City. And I was like, yeah. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, it was part of part of my decision to come here was the thunder. <laughs> it wasn't, uh, it wasn't Shawnee, Oklahoma that, uh, that drew you to Oklahoma. I mean, so yeah, it's a weird thing. I, uh, I'd never heard of Shawnee, Oklahoma. Um, being from Southern California, I was like, I don't know anything about Texas. I don't know anything about, I don't, you know, basically I just knew about California. Yeah. So, but I was, I was attracted to, to Oklahoma cause the city itself, Oklahoma City, was growing so well, and the Thunder were yeah. doing great. There was just kind of some excitement going on, and so yeah, it was neat. Oklahoma Baptist University is in Shawnee, Oklahoma. That's what we're talking about, and this is going to mean this is probably not going to mean much to anybody outside of you and I and like ten other people, but it's really important to me that we talk about the Shawnee Mall. Um, okay. So I last time I was out there, I had like a whole morning to kill. And uh, I texted a, a mutual friend of ours, Matt Emerson, who teaches there. And I said, what should I do while I'm in Shawnee? And he said, well, there's really nothing to do except go to the mall. That's about the only thing that you can uh, find any, any free time. He didn't warn me about what I was stepping into. 
walking into the Shawnee Mall is like walking into 1986. Just yeah. a time warp. Like you walk through the, the floors, the tile, the paint, the decorations. And so I'm wandering around this mall thinking this is the most just back to the future thing I've ever been a part of. Like I kept waiting for Marty McFly to come walking out in his jacket. Like it just <laughs> felt like that was the right thing to do, right thing to happen. And then I went into, there was a little coffee shop. There was like a little, um, not even a coffee shop. It was like a little nutrition store. It had like, they made smoothies and coffee and they had like, you know, jerky and um, cliff bars and all those different things. And I walk in there and the guy in there is like, you know, he's probably my age, you know, early 30s. And I'm thinking, okay, this guy gets it right. So I made a joke. I said, yeah, I'm from uh, Dallas and then Nashville. And I was like, man, this mall just seems like a blast from the past. Like, it just seems really strange. And he looked at me like he had no clue what I was talking about. <laughs> and yeah. I said, I was like, yeah, do you, you know what I mean? He's like, uh, no, not really. I was like, oh, well, maybe he's, uh, maybe he just, uh, is so in it that he doesn't realize that he's in it. He's just swimming in the water and I'm telling him about water, you know, but, uh, it was, it, I mean, just the strangest experience ever. Did they call security on you after you said that? Like, did he hit? No, I, did, I never even saw under... security or other shoppers. So I don't think there was anybody there to stop me at that point. It's, uh, yeah, it is amazing. I'm, I'm happy that it stays open, but I, every time I visit, I'm like, how, does this work? Because I was seeing it's the eighth wonder here. of the world. It truly is. It is. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you know, most malls, you know, especially on the weekend, you know, like the high schoolers go there and show up and they sort of troll the place. And it just doesn't happen. It's very strange. It's a, it's a, bizarre, do they troll? a day. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. What <laughs> are there teenagers in Shawnee, Oklahoma? Design. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are. Yeah, there are. So, I don't know. They're probably up to mischief. Kids well, I went days. to Buffalo Wild Wings right there, and there were college students there, but I did not see anybody who looked younger than college age there. Yeah, yeah. So the kids definitely don't go there. I don't know. They're probably just on the internet. They don't have to go anywhere now. That's yeah, thing. that's a fair point. That's a fair right? point. All right, well, that's a good yeah. transition to um, talking about, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your newest book, Disruptive Witness. What kind of led you to write this book? So uh, you're you're kind of interesting in that you... Uh, on the one, I mean, you're interesting for a lot of reasons. Your your beard, your your hair, all the the, the lush hair that you have on top of your head, um, your sweater vests, your tweets. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting things about you. I don't but, actually um, even own a sweater vest. You're thinking of Dan Darling. I don't actually own a sweater vest. <laughs> Dan is going to totally appreciate that. Dan Darling and Hunter Baker both wear sweater vests. I don't wear a sweater vest. Your, so, yours has um, sleeves on it. Did you mean to book Dan Darling? Do you think who do you think we're oh. talking to right? <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, um, is Dan Darling not the English professor at Oklahoma Baptist University? <laughs> he might be. He's a man of many <laughs> talents. I will say, though, I love I love it when people, as you did, just introduced my book as like my newest book, which makes it sound like I've got like multiple books, which I appreciate. <laughs> I'm not going to. That's I'm a fair gonna, point. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's true. It is my latest book, technically. <laughs> Your latest of, of, <laughs> of, of I'm sure, many. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, but so you wrote this book and it's um, you know, it's it's about secularism, it's about culture, it's about a lot of different things. Uh, but you also, I mean, you started Christ and Pop Culture, this website, Christian Commentary on Culture, but you're an English professor. So kind of how did you get to become an English professor, doing all this cultural stuff? Did you sort of stumble into being an English professor and kind of wish you were a philosophy professor or kind of how did that all work out for you? Is it just just the interest that you have? What is it? So a couple of things. I mean, one, one of the actual first things that, that drew me to English when I was at that community college in Southern California was noticing that my professors, uh, because of the variety of, 
of themes in novels were able to, you know, research and wrestle with basically any major life question. Anything yeah. that was important in culture or in life, uh, literature addresses in some level, in some way. And so, you know, for some of them, they were interested in uh, like uh, American culture of violence and the American West. And so we read a lot of books about that. Um, and I thought, oh, you know, that's really that's a neat thing that you can just, you know, you can have certain passions and you can pursue them through stories in a classroom environment and engage students in those conversations in, uh, <clears throat> in a way that's not as direct as you would in, say, a, a, you know, a, a, a class on philosophy or ethics or whatever. So that interested me. Um, so that's part of the short answer. The other thing is that um, as a homeschooler who had an interesting, you know, uh, yeah, very homeschooled, uh, some of the churches we went to or were a part of, I would, I would say were fairly fundamentalist. Um, my parents weren't, but, but they were, you know, the environment I, ra I was raised in in the 80s and 90, early 90s, um, there was a, a definite hostility and fear about the world. And so on one hand, I had this sort of experience growing up being scared of, of participating in culture. And then on the other hand, because I was homeschooled, we, we read through Schaefer's How Then Should We Live? And I have this other experience of uh, a Christian who uh, I was taught to look up to, who was seriously and on their own terms participating in, in culture and, and thinking through it and engaging it. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And so kind of uh, while I was working on my master's degree in English in California, I decided my sort of calling, if you want to call it that, was to um, help the church be a better participant in culture in a way that's more biblical and edifying and loving and appropriate and thoughtful. And um, I, I had training specifically in literature. And so I decided, okay, what I'm going to do is that's going to be my my sort of focus where I have some depth, but my, my actual passion is much, much broader than that. English is just mm -hmm. sort of the one area where I have the most expertise. And that does sort of, I mean, it does form a nice foundation for everything else that you do, I guess though. I mean, so you can always, you always kind of have that to fall back on. I do. And, and the thing with English is at least studying literature, you end up studying how to interpret things. Um, and how to interpret people and cultures and times and ideas. And so if you can, if you can read a book, well, uh, you can read a song or a film or a TV show or a meme or a political speech. Well, um, those skills directly transfer. I mean, each of those other mediums have their own sort of language and vocabulary, but, um, but the basics of, close reading and interpretation that you learn in studying literature are directly applicable to basically all the interests that I have. And so when I engage in, you know, and talk about politics or something, I'm definitely informed by, you know, studying rhetoric and, and, and studying, you know, literature and persuasion and things like that. So. And so who, who have been some of the more kind of influential, uh, writers in literature, philosophers, I, mean, I know you, I know you um, have an interest in Charles Taylor and other things like that. Who are some of the ones that have influenced you and sort of shaped how you think and how you view the world? Because I think most, 
you know, you kind of your average theologian is going to name four, five, six theologians or Bible scholars. Uh, but I suspect that you would probably, you know, be shaped a little bit differently. Yes. So certainly uh, Taylor, um, Jamie Smith, um, his writings um, have been very helpful, very formative for me. I think Neil Postman, um, kind of an obvious obvious one, but an important yeah. one. Uh, in, in theology, they, um, um, uh, David Bentley Hart, um, The Beauty of the Infinite, of the Infinite that book in particular, <laughs> has been helpful. Uh, Peter Lightheart <clears throat> has been helpful mm-hmm. to me. Um, Peter Berger, the sociologist, Peter Berger. Um, gosh, who else? Oh, Flannery not, O'Connor. Uh, Flannery O'Connor, not so much, <laughs> a little bit maybe. Um, <laughs> I feel like you and I have are the only two people in the world who are willing to critique Flannery O'Connor. I, I do it from a very uh, lay perspective. You probably do it from like a legitimate scholarly perspective. I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I won't criticize her. I'm just, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like C.S. Lewis. You know, if I wanted to be, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm probably going to get fired. That's do it. This is how yeah. I want to go out. If I, get I want to get you fired this, right here. It's, you know what? I'm okay with it. If your I mean, political tweets haven't place, got you fired by now, you're, you're talking about Flannery O'Connor and C.S. Lewis is not going to get you fired. I'm going to Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, Flannery O'Connor and C.S. Lewis, those are like sacred among Christians. Like yeah. that's crossed the line. I've noticed. I've noticed. Um, but I, you know, look, I love them both. They're both wonderful writers. They have some really good things. They're thought, intelligent, a lot smart. Both of them are a lot smarter than me, or I'll ever be. But um, there's kind of just like a fatigue. It kind of feels yeah. like if you're a Christian who reads, then you have like this moral obligation to say, "Well, uh, my favorite authors are C.S. Lewis, Planet of Honor." I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, they're great. Yeah, they're good. There are other people. I don't know if you're aware of it. You know, so, um, uh, yeah. I read Flannery O'Connor. I've tried to read her several times and just have, I don't know, just didn't, didn't do it for me. It's just completely aesthetic taste. Just couldn't get into it. And it's probably me. It's probably not Flannery's fault, but. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's probably true. That's <laughs> probably true. I mean, if you don't, if you don't like her at all, it probably is a, a, a defect in, you, in your aesthetics. Uh, I mean, she's, I mean, her stories are good. Not all of them, but a lot of them are, are really good. They're really, they're really brilliant. But, um, yeah, for me, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I could put Tolkien in there too. Like, yeah, he's, he's great. Yeah. Um, but you don't have to, you know, like there, are, there are other things you can go beyond, uh, Flannery O'Connor, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Yeah. You will. You'd, you'd be surprised uh, how many people, uh, those three and, um, J.K. Rowling, they wouldn't go any much past that. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. So that's how I get fired. And, it's okay. Harry Potter is really the, isn't Harry Potter really the sacred cow though? Every time I tell people I've never read Harry Potter, Christians that I have never read Harry Potter, they think it's either because I hate witchcraft or I'm an idiot. That's one or the other, but it's not just because I don't really care for it. Isn't that strange? Cause I mean, it's so different from the debates that we were evangelicals were having when the books were first coming <laughs> right. out. And, and it, it marks a tra- I mean, something has changed in evangelicalism. I mean, we're not, our view of culture has almost 180 it feels like at least the mainstream because it felt very mainstream to be skeptical of at the very least if not antagonistic toward harry potter because of the witchcraft yeah and now in 2018 it feels like whoa that sucks like can't believe your parents wouldn't let you read harry potter i know 
Well, I probably missed the, I think I missed the boat a little bit. My little brother's eight years younger than me and he was sort of right in the sweet spot. I was actually talking on a previous episode with Kyle Strobel about this. And one of the things about Harry Potter that um, I just can't get past is people keep telling me that I have to suffer through the first three books before I'll appreciate the uh, the series. And I just don't have three books worth of suffering in me to to try to get into Harry Potter. And I think it's, you know, it, you know, it was written to... To, for you know, nine-year-olds to grow up into basically, and I'm 33, and I just don't know if this is uh, if this is the stage of life where Harry Potter is for me. Are you going to convince me otherwise, or do you agree? No, no, I'm not going to bother convincing you. There's so many great things to read. You don't need to read Harry Potter. Look, I mean, I Thank I you. enjoy it. Uh, I'm reading it to my daughter. Um, I enjoy it, but it's also painful to me. I mean, there's there's the prose is not great, and there's a lot of um, a lot of it could be trimmed significantly there's a lot of a lot of plots that are just unnecessary um it's not great writing in fact i've often said that if she was smart what she would do is she would do like a special edition star wars special edition and just go back and make them actually well written and then re-release them because like who's not gonna like if you're a harry potter fan you're gonna buy it yeah for sure i totally buy it to reread it so just to see right she'd make another you know, $25 billion or whatever, and then she can take over the world. So probably I'll be better off. She's already halfway there. So all she's got to do is do that, and then it'll be over for all of us. Exactly. All right, well, let's transition a little bit into uh, talking about the book that we mentioned earlier, your latest and greatest book, the best one that you've written, I would say, (laughs) so far. (laughs) That's right. Most critics agree that it's my best. (laughs) All the Amazon reviews have said, this is the best of all of the Alan Noble books. That's right. All right. So give me a little, give us a little thesis on that. Just kind of talk through, you know, how that book came about and what you're trying to argue in that book. Yeah. So it, it actually has to go back to, to Francis Schaefer, that experience I had reading him in, in, uh, in high school uh, as a homeschooler. And then um, several years ago, um, writing for Christ and Pop Culture, I got to thinking about this question of, of the model that Francis Schaefer had with Labrie. So Labrie is this little, uh, you can't really call it an institute. It was more like a home or a commune in Switzerland. Uh, and he replicated it in England and France and several in America where people could come and visit and study. And a lot of them were going there actually uh, in the 60s and 70s with with questions about life. So, um, you know, so he would have hippies and people in the drug culture and Buddhists and uh, lapsed Christians and uh you know, all kinds of people, atheists, and they were coming to him with, you know, desiring to know basic things. Why, why, why should I live? Uh, um, what is the purpose of life? These sorts of things. And he would help them study, read, they'd work together, pray together, eat together. And, and, um, and I was thinking about this model, which I find very appealing, this idea of people coming to me with, you know, wanting to have these conversations, and I thought, well, can I do this in 2018 or 2015 or however long it was when I started this project? And I found myself, my intuition was that that, that model wouldn't really work as well. Um, and so I asked why, and I found myself deciding or thinking that the, the reason it wouldn't work very well is that most people, most people today don't um, engage those questions. They still have them because everyone naturally does, but they just don't think about them. And they certainly don't like decide to go somewhere for six months to study and find answers to those questions. 
So the next question I had was, well, why? Why why aren't people asking these questions like I, I think they were in the 60s and 70s? And there's some political reasons, some sociological reasons, you know, where America was at post-World War II, during the Cold War, so on and so forth. But the strongest conclusion that I came to was that these two forces, secularism and technology of distraction, sort of work together, not intentionally, but they just sort of naturally work together to do to create sort of uh, several buffers so that um, the common person uh, generally does not have a, a sense of urgency about engaging these these life's big questions. They don't have a, a fear, a need to get them answered. They kind of feel like there are a million different answers to life's big questions, so there's not really a reason to find an answer. The important thing is to live a life that is satisfying to yourself. And that's the secularism part. And the sort of technology distraction part, it feeds into that by so that when you do experience moments in your life where you have a great sense of uh, maybe a loved one dies and you think, how can this be just? Is there a purpose to our lives? How is there is there justice in the world? Um, technology distraction makes it easy for us to move on without uh, truly considering um, entertaining those thoughts. Um, and it, so we kind of create a perfect storm between secularism and, and technology of distraction so that we don't ask questions. So that's the book is sort of outlining here's this problem, the social problem that we have, and then trying to offer some very modest ways of at least pushing back against that. <laughs> okay. And so what are some ways? I mean, the title of the book is Disruptive Witness, which you're basically saying that there are things we can do that sort of disrupt this tendency in us or the tendency in culture. So what, what does that look like for Christians to sort of live out what you're saying as far as trying to model a better way, to promote a better way, to engage in a better way? If, if I told you, then nobody's going to buy the book. No, I need you uh, chapter by chapter. Give, Just give the whole chapter. Just read the chapters. Away, that's the whole thing. I got to tease them. And then they feel like, man, we're hopeless. And then they go out and buy my book. And then I can pay off some debt. I've got some debt I've got to pay off, <laughs> medical debt, some other things. So, um, but for real. So uh, I, I kind of break it down to three general areas. Um, and I know in the middle of the book, after I sort of diagnose where we're at, I, I admit the problem is way too big. Yeah. This is not, it, it's a societal problem. You can't wave a wand or shoot a silver bullet and, and kill it. It's just too big. So, but I do think we have an obligation to try and so I break those attempts at pushing back into, into three categories. One are sort of personal practices, and second are church practices, and third are uh, sort of cultural, cu- cultural practices. And at all three of those levels, I think we can change our actions, our habits, um, in such a way as to offer, uh, you know, to use the titular line, a disruptive witness. Um, you know, so, so personal habits... Um, you know, could could be anything like, uh, in, including, um, you know, praying for for meals, uh, giving grace uh, in public without shame, and 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 doing it in a way where you actually acknowledge um, that a living God actually provided that food for you, um, which I argue because of secularism is a hard thing to keep in the front of our minds. Hmm. Because our tendency is going to be to think of food as being sort of miraculously uh, delivered to our plates by, you know, without human hands touching it um, because of basically our markets and technology and how things are done. 
Whereas hundreds of years ago, you know, 95% of the population were uh, farmers, if not more. And so the natural thing would be, you'd be acutely aware of how you had to depend on God for the meal you're right. eating every day. So that's just, a, you know, a minor example, but, you know, I talk about other things, uh, a sense of gratitude, I think is very important. Um, uh, also making space for contemplation and for, you know, undirected thought. Uh, so many of our lives are just absolutely cluttered from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep with stuff and entertainment and content, uh, except for podcasts. Uh, I think podcasts are great and um, especially this one, they don't count towards cluttering. Yeah, this yeah, is... this one actually it's just this one is the only one. Anything Christ and Pop Culture does, or any other I've been on, but the rest of them, really, you know, we need less content. <laughs> yeah. So th- then the church practices, I just, I just basically argue that I, I think rightly done, our church, our churches can be just these places where we're offering a radically different vision of what our lives are. Rather than individual, we you know we emphasize that we're communal and that we're um, you know we're indebted to Christ and that we serve a living and transcending God, not just a a morality or an ideal right. or a, an aesthetic or a lifestyle choice. And in the section on cultural practices, I talk a lot about how um, well literature, for example, can be a way reading stories together, watching films together, and, and talking about them in certain ways can lend themselves to opening people up to, um, to truths that they don't want to otherwise recognize. The, the chapter on church practices I thought was really helpful because this, uh, this type of idea can turn into, on the one hand, just completely personal, like, hey, you need to read your Bible more, you need to read this more, you need to think, contemplate more, pray more, which is all true. Uh, or you need to be more socially active, you need to be more politically active, you need to go knock on your neighbor's door and bake them cookies. Again, that's all great too. But I think even even in the Christian world, and maybe even right now in our moment, it's really easy, I think, to to miss out on the church community aspect of it. And where that's actually sort of, we, you know, at our church, we have significant amount of college students because we're right by uh, one of the largest universities in Tennessee. And that's the thing that they they tend toward, you know, on the one hand, they know how to talk gospelly. They know how to talk about how the gospel impacts, you know, how they should vote and how they should view race and how they should view marriage and how they should view all these things, which again is great. But a lot of them don't actually believe the gospel or understand why it's important to be part of a church community. So they can talk gospelly, but they miss out on a significant portion of the gospel itself, which is community and obviously what Christ has done for us in the community and the body that he's brought us into. So could you talk a little bit more, you know, about that part of it, just being a professor at a university, dealing with young people, I see this a little bit just in, in the church, in our church. And have you found that that church practice part, do you think I'm right that that has been missed a lot by this generation? Or do you think that's an exaggeration or, or what's your, what are your thoughts on that based on your experience and your research? I mean, there's, there's variety. So on one hand, I think there's, there are a number of young people who hunger for more liturgy and a more solemn church, uh, more solemn uh, church perp- uh, uh, services, yeah. ch- church services. Um because they're filled with things during their week that are superficial, that are flashy, that are providing them notifications and high entertainment and production value. And um, there's a thinness to all that, a superficiality to all that, um, uh, an attention grabbing to all that. And um, 
you know, a traditional church service doesn't do those things. It doesn't, it doesn't try to sell you on it. It doesn't say, Hey, come, come participate, come see me because it's really exciting and fun to be here. Um, but that is what the rest of our culture does. Everything from films to stores, uh, everything, apps, websites, everything is telling you, come pay attention to me because I'm interesting and engaging and will please you. And the church shouldn't do that. So there, there are a group, I think of younger people who are aware of that. They're, they're conscious of this. And there's a kind of feeling of just disgust. Like when you eat too much candy after Halloween and you're just kind of like, I'm this, I just feel, I need something of nutritional value. I need something to feed my soul, not just this sort of superficial um, consumer attention grabbing that that is my day-to-day life um but i do think um and and this is something i try to address in the book i do think that you know it's also the case that a lot of people probably probably most people don't often come to that feeling they don't often they're not often aware of that feeling of sort of sickness or recognition that this church is or this church services there's a superficiality to it um and I think this has to do with, you know, there, there are several things. One, um, when you are acculturated to certain uh, cultural practices, so if you're used to, let's say, watching commercials, and then your church uh, introduces, um, you know, commercials during the service or between songs or something, commercials for camp or men's Bible study or the next sermon series or something, um, that's pleasing to you because it's the language that you speak. Yeah. Uh, if your church encourages you to text in questions to the pastor, you know, um, again, that's sort of the language that you speak. So I, I think for most of us, we're actually, we just kind of feel more at home with the forms that we're used to using, you know, during the work, uh, during the other six days of the week. Um, and so what happens is we just kind of don't recognize the problems. We don't, you know, we're not critically thinking about whether, um, any of these things undermine our faith um, and just kind of sneak in to the church. Yeah, and there's no doubt that we have noticed that, you know, our church, we, the more that we've actually, the last couple of years, have introduced liturgy, doing the Lord's Supper more often, um, praying together, really pushing community, confession, repentance, sort of just all the pretty basic rhythms that are the unsexy basic rhythms of Christianity that, that, that actually our college students and our younger adults and younger couples tend to love that about our church. And so they kind of come in thinking, okay, you know, we have a good preacher, we have good music, we we have the plank uh, stage like everybody else does in the back, and uh, which we, I always make fun of, but we haven't changed it yet. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that, that sort of thing, like they come in, they're like, I don't really know what church is. The church I grew up in was sort of more, you know, it's, it's Tennessee. So you've got your kind of major Southern Baptist churches that are very seeker sensitive, that are really about gathering the masses together. And they, you know, they they sort of say, I don't really know what what church is supposed to be, but this is different, and I like it. So a lot of younger people are, are moving to, you know, more Anglican and Presbyterian type churches that they're starting to find that. And I hope that what that means is is that churches more and more will realize that, not just to draw young people, but to realize that part of the reason why that's so I don't know what the word is attractive, for lack of a better word, that they actually say, well, maybe it's attractive because that actually hits on more of the actual soul of Christianity and the soul of humanity. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope I hope so too. And I've seen, you know, I teach at a Southern Baptist school, and I've I, you know I've definitely seen my colleagues and people I know there 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 is an encouraging 
would say sort of revival among Southern Baptists of you know recognizing the importance of some of these older church traditions that there's really no reason to not have them as a part of your church service. Yeah. It's not like you're introducing, you know, you know, transubstantiation. Trans, trans I can't even, I can't even say that. I thought I could correct you. I thought I'd correct you, but I thought now I'll just let it work it out. Grace, mm. That's, mm. that's fine. Works well, I'm just letting you earn your reward, that's brother. Fine. And then, uh, yeah, well, I put it in my, uh, treasury of merit. Uh, anyway, so, um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and, and that's, that is, that is encouraging. And I think for, for, for some students, you know, some younger people, I think they're going to recognize that and, and that will be valuable. And the trick, I think for the church, for the, you know, Protestant evangelical church moving forward and, and recognizing this is not to say, okay, the market uh, is demanding right. these things, right? So right. like, as soon as you, as soon as you take that step, you've already sold yourself out. You're already, you're done. And, and I've seen lots of churches do this, right? So what they'll do is they'll be like, man, people want a more authentic Christianity. Let's go get mm-hmm. some candles, right? And like, let's get some <laughs> incense and let's get, you know, let's just, you know, I don't know, put on robes or something. And and there's no, so the value is tapping into, uh, you know, long church tradition that that is retrievable, that, 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 that doesn't mind undermine our Protestant faith. But that actually um, taps us into something, you know, true that maybe we've, you know, abandoned unnecessarily. Um, but but if you're just like, well, the market's asking for this, so I'm going to go find it. You're just going to create this hodgepodge, uh, almost like a postmodern market-driven church where, you know, right. there's actually going to be nothing authentic about it. You're just appealing to certain aesthetic values, hipness or something, you know, and that's 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 not that's not good. Is then you're going to change in another six months, right? Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, if you, at the one hand, if you want to say, we need to move this way because we th- we think theologically and ecclesiologically this is right, or even you're open and humble enough to say, you know what, maybe we should be doing that because that's actually more authentic and more legitimate. Versus, like you said, the attractiveness of we can get more people in the door if we do this because, like you said, that never works. And the last fifty years of evangelicalism has found the perfect formula for getting people to show up. And I'm sure there's been a lot of good. There has been a lot of good that has come from that, but that also has bred the nuns and, you know, this, not the Catholic nuns, the N-O-N-E-S nuns, and has sort of bred a, a lot of false conversions and sort of yeah. a big groundswell of people who say they're Christian but aren't. And you can do that with liturgy too. If, if that's what you think the market wants and if that's what you want to market to, you can build a, a nice liturgical church that feels more real and more uh, grainy or whatever, and still have the same results in 50 years, which is a bunch of false conversions and people who were there for the experience or were there for the marketing and not actually there for Christ. Yep. That's exactly right. And then, and then, and then what'll happen is if you, let's say, stay true to orthodoxy, uh, and your the people in your pews are primarily there because it was attractive that, that, that they made a personal prep, they, they identified, their personal preferences aligned with your church. And then all of a sudden you tell them, I don't know, sex with, outside of marriage is sin. Um, and culture says that that is um, offensive and anti, you know, infringes upon our personal autonomy and privacy or something. Uh, all of a sudden they're going to ask themselves, why am I going yeah. to this church? You know, I, I, I like some of the aesthetics, but this is too socially costly. So it, it no longer fits my preferences. Or alternative, so that's one option. The other option is you end up saying, you know, 
orthodoxy isn't really what matters here. So what matters is the aesthetics of this church. So that's what I've got to preserve. And, um, and I think what's more authentic is saying that, oh, I don't know, sex outside of marriage is not really wrong. That, it, you know, as long as you're being consenting adults, then it's okay. And so either of those dangers lead to all kinds of, of, of wrongs. And so what do you think? Uh, I was sitting down with a scholar uh, recently, and he didn't say this publicly, so I won't say his name, although I think he's talked about this a lot publicly. But one of the things we talked about was kind of the future of evangelicalism in America, given sort of our political moment, our cultural moment, social media, you know, et cetera, all, all, all the things that we can complain about. And, uh, but he, you know, I said, where do you think we're going? Where do you think Christianity is going to be in 25 years, 50 years? And he said, I think what's going to happen is we're going to have, the church is going to have to make a decision eventually that they've not really had to make before, which is, are you going to be co-opted by power and by the state and by cultural influence? Or are you going to be willing to be basically marginalized and not get most of the perks of the rest of culture? And he said, he said, you know, I, we haven't had to make that decision yet, but he sees that coming. And he said, I don't think the church is prepared to make that decision yet. And he said, one of the, you know, he, he mentioned several things. One of the things being churches, you know, reaching back into their historic roots and reaching back into orthodoxy and liturgy and sort of being countercultural, kind of like you say, in, the, in their habits and in the way that they do things. Uh, but also just being willing to be a faithful remnant, which we see throughout Scripture over and over again and throughout Christian tradition, the fact that there really is a faithful remnant, and then there's one that's sort of co-opted by the government. And he said, you know, you know, if you look at politics, if you look at culture today, the church is just not ready to do that. And so he said, I, I don't, I think that's the decision that's going to be need, uh, need to be made. But I don't know if the church knows what to do about it, and I think it's just going to hit us like a ton of bricks all at once. And it's going to be, you know, it's not going to kill the church in America, but it's going to be sort of disastrous in what the church looks like now. What are your thoughts on that sort of perspective, and how do you think? How do you think things are going just based on how you see it? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so another way of looking at it is that, that, that we've already been confronted with it in the last, you know, five years or so. And there have been kind of two directions. So one side has said, you know, we really like power. And so we're going to accept pragmatism. And if that means um, making excuses for evil, then sin and, and vileness that we would never excuse in the past, then maybe we need to do that. Uh, and then I think there's another side that has said, um, you know, the, the social pressure to reject, uh, um, you know, biblical sexual norms is too strong. And it feels like I'm betraying my humanity and, and denying the humanity of others. And so this is too costly. So there, I need to find some other Christianity that will yeah. allow me to accept sort of progressive sexual ethics and still call myself a Christian. So, I mean, I, I would say we're, we're already deep in that. And, and the groups that have acquiesced, I, I think neither of the ma- two major groups I'm thinking of acknowledge yeah, yeah. that there has been any sort of crisis. Like they haven't acknowledged that they've gotten to a point where they've had to, had to you know, make this choice. They've just sort of said, well, this is the natural thing. This is, and that's the most insidious. And it should, if we're humble, it should make, uh, the rest of us reflect and say, well, are there ways in which I also have acquiesced, that, that I also have been faced with this choice of do I stay faithful to what I know to be true or do I accept politi- and, and, and face political backlash or cultural backlash or, you know, what do I do? And, 
And I think if we're reflective, I think we'll, we'll acknowledge that there are lots of little ways that we, we all um, are, are, are hypocritical about these things. Um, to avoid persecution, to avoid, you know, social shaming, to gain power so that we can um, yeah. not be, uh, you know, subject to shaming. Um, um, but, yeah, uh, I, you know, I think that person is right. Um, I would just say that I think we're already right in the thick of it. And the question is going to be, how is it going to wash out? Right. So what, what does the church look like five years from now, as I think, um, a lot of those decisions have already been made by people, um, and uh, and I would like to think that a faithful remnant has not fallen into either of the major traps. So what, what does it look like in 10 years from now? Is just the faithful remnant left? Um, do some of these people sort of come back around and recognize the error of their ways? Um, does the church get deeply defamed in public uh, as those proclaiming Christ? Um, are living deeply hypocritical or anti-Christian lives and advocating anti-Christian things. Um, I, I don't know. It's hard to be in know. the prediction business right now, that's for sure, because it's, you know, the last five yeah. to 10 years in so many different ways, I think it's just blown people away. I mean, if you, if you looked at, I mean, if I were, if you'd asked me 10 or 12 years ago, if I thought that same-sex marriage would be legal, like actually legal, yeah. In America. Absolutely. Now, I'm not making a value judgment on it as, it's, as you know, whether or not it should be in law or whatever, but just like, d- do you think it'll be in law? I would have said, absolutely not. Like, there's no way that that's going to happen in 10 years. Are you crazy? That's like still so taboo. Right. And then you look at, you know, the 2016 election and just how split everybody was and how vitriolic everybody was and, and just how that all played out. I think if you'd asked people five years ago if that would have happened, they would have said, no, absolutely not. There's no way that we would be in the situation we're in now. And so I just wonder, I mean, it's so hard to even fathom what could happen because, I, you know, the optimist in me wants to say, we're not going to get worse. We're going to get better eventually. Like everybody's going to look around and go, this is crazy. The way we talk about each other, the way that we divide each other, the way we hate each other, the way that we uh, other everybody else and are not willing to listen and learn from anybody else. Surely humanity will kind of figure that out, right, eventually, and will kind of self-correct. You know, we've if you look back in the 60s and 70s, Politics were crazy then. Culture was crazy then. Things kind of, you know, came back to center a little bit. And I just wonder if that's if that's ever going to happen again or not. And the prediction business is a hard place to be. But I wonder what you, you know, what you think. I, I'm optimist to think that we're we're going to realize how crazy all of this is. Just the the division and the hate, and that we'll kind of work our way back towards some sort of a middle. Uh, but you know, it, sometimes it's you look at it and you just go, no, it's just going to get worse. It's just going to keep devolving. Man, yeah, I'm super hesitant to predict anything after the 2016 election. Um, you know, uh, I've been <laughs> thoroughly humbled. Yeah. I don't know what I don't know what Americans are capable of, <laughs> the church is capable of, and interested in, and and um, I thought I did, and it turns out that I'm I'm not as good a you know judge as, as I thought I was. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of people smarter than me were also. Yeah. Um, uh, caught flat-footed, so I don't know if that helps, but yeah, it's it's really hard. It's really hard to say what's what's going to happen. I'm worried about declining rates of faith among um, younger uh, evangelicals, and um, and I suspect I, I I have noticed a dynamic where um, younger evangelicals or people who are maybe even tenuous, maybe former evangelicals are kind of uncomfortable where they are in their faith. They have 
felt very alienated from their faith and from the Christian community, primarily because of politics. And what's what's that's not particularly new. But what is new, I think, is that I've noticed that a lot of them don't want to yeah, talk yeah. about it to their parents or elders, you know, like say in their church, older mm-hmm. people in their church. And I think the reason is that they kind of feel like I know what mom and dad think, and I just don't even want to have that argument. Um, like, it's just not going to go anywhere. There's a kind of hopelessness to it. Like, well, they're going to think what they think. I'm going to think what I think. And it's just whatever. And that's really dangerous because we're not articulating these things. We're not having a conversation within the church. Then, um, my fear is that a lot of those younger people are going to drift away because there are strong forces that will say to them, you feel alienated right now yep. in the church because of yep. politics. Come find a home over here, outside of the church, or outside of the Orthodox Church at least. We will make you feel more at home politically, and you know we'll, we'll give you some of these other benefits, a community, so on and so forth. And that really frightens me. That really frightens me because I, because I don't I I fear that a lot of leaders, local mm-hmm. pastors, and even you know higher leaders don't understand how much is at stake right now because a lot of those younger people are not as vocal as they maybe would have been in the past. And um, so the pessimist side of me says, maybe in 10, 15 years, we're going to be looking back and being like, oh my gosh, how did we let this happen without, you know, how did we not see? Um, but on the other hand, you know, a lot of young people are very encouraging to me. I mean, the nice thing about teaching at OBU, you know, I meet a lot of uh, deeply devout Christians who are passionate about loving their neighbor and being biblically orthodox and and uh, who love the church and love ministry and, and missions and um, caring for the poor and needy. And, and they're smart young people. And I'm like, okay, you know, God's, God's got this. Um, yeah, I do, I do agree, though. I think... Even if you look at just people our age, you know, the scholars that I know that are in our general generation, the pastors I know in our generation, it does seem like there there certainly is a generational divide between our parents and our grandparents and us. There's no doubt about that. Sometimes probably not as much as we think. You know, several times I've sat down with my parents and my in-laws and talked about this stuff, and it's not actually been as it's not been as uh, separate as I thought it would be, although there's definitely some significant differences. But it does seem like overall, at least the leaders that I know, and this is this is definitely coming from a very limited perspective of people that I hang out with and that I read and that I interact with. It does seem like the leaders in our generation are aware of this and are at least trying to figure out what to do about it. You know, how do we help shape the next generation to both love the gospel, love orthodoxy, yeah. not abandon the church, at the same time teach them, here's how you can care about your neighbor, here's how you can care about the political you know, movements and trends and how you get involved in them and still try to teach them how to do that without totally bailing. Because I think the default is definitely to bail. And I felt that default at times in my life that, you know what, I already know how this is going to go. I'm out. But I think it, it seems like our generation of leaders, at least generally speaking from those that I interact yeah. with and read, even those outside of my tradition, outside of my camp, seem to have some sort of a, of a understanding that, hey, we've got to do something about this. And I hope that that continues. And I hope that even our generation doesn't at some level give up as well, which is definitely a temptation that I understand. It is. It is very, it's very tempting. And and, and the, to me, the million dollar question is those leaders who get it. And I do think you're absolutely right. There's a, there are a lot of people that, that we both know who are, 
we absolutely get it. They're passionate about it. They see the danger and they're working hard. Uh, and I'm very grateful for them. But the million dollar question to me is how to address the problem that Dan Darling called. Yeah. What do you, what do you say, Dan? What is, what quote do you say, Dan? What is your thing? Yeah. 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 So Dan says, you know, Dan talks about, you know, the fact that the church in many ways is being more catechized by, you know, talk radio and Fox news than, than pastors and, and, um, you know, creeds and the Bible. And, um, that's the million dollar question because I've known from anecdotal evidence, you know, experiences people have told me that, you know, they're, that, that, you know, you have a lot of pastors who recognize these dangers. You have a lot of church leaders who are not necessarily pastors, but they're pastoring the pastors and they get it. And they're trying to communicate that to the pastors, but there's still this huge disconnect. And, um, the question is, and this is a question about our media era, like our social media and our media era where there is an almost infinite amount of content vying for our attention. And you've got a little bit of time on Sunday morning, maybe on Wednesday night or something. Yeah. Uh, who's doing the most catechism? Who, who's, who's shaping the hearts and minds, the political visions, the social visions, uh, who's forming people's consciences. And, um, uh, you know, right now for, for most of us, I, you know, I, I don't think it's the church and that's scary. And I, I don't know practically, you know, how do you address that? How do you, how do you challenge that? There's the, the, the other argument, the counter argument to that is, and I'm not saying this is my argument, but the counter argument could be, look, it's time for the church to just disengage, you know, go Benedict option or, or whatever option. There's 15 options out there right now <laughs> that have been published. Uh, you know, take take it and basically step out of the politics, uh, step out of cultural engagement. Let's go start our own schools. Let's start our own communities. Let's just hang in there and catechize our kids and hope for the best rather than try to get involved in the big organizations and the big power and all that kind of stuff. Let's just bail out on that and, and just see what happens with us and our families and our kids. And I think that's a that's a dangerous option as well in a lot of ways because, you know, I, I think part of the way, definitely not the way, part of the way that you care for your neighbor is getting involved in the power structures of the country at some level. You know, I mean, you, you can say on the one hand, it's not sinful not to vote, but it is a, it is a good way to get involved if you can. Um, it's not sinful to care about what's happening in the news and what's happening in your local schools and what's happening in other places, but you should try to get involved because that's part of how you love your neighbor. But I see the temptation for people to say, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to get out, you know, forget all of the, all that stuff, forget trying to, to vote my way through this. We all know how it's going to work out. So I think that's a danger on the other side. And I don't know, I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I think we definitely have to find some sort of a balance between not trusting in politics and cultural systems as much as we have while at the same time realizing that that is what drives our world and our culture in so many ways and that we should care about it. So if we, we think about systemic injustice as a prime example of, on the one hand, look, you need to go and love your neighbor and you know seek diversity in your, in your friendships, in your church, realize that these people are made in the image of God and that these people are being wronged, vote the best you can against people who are going to you know perpetuate that. You've got to find that balance between caring about how the systemic issues happen but not just thinking that's the way to fix everything. And on the other hand, thinking, well, if I just share the gospel and I just have a diverse church, well, all this other stuff will work itself out. Neither one of those examples, you know, those extremes seem like the right way to go with me, but it just depends on the day which one I tend toward most. That's right. Yep. Yep. And I think that's, that's pretty common. I mean, that is because it, you know, it's, it's hard when you know that there is no 
if you engage in politics, you're not going to be able to fix things. I mean, you're going to, you can improve things, but you're not going to be able to fix it. And, and when you feel that sense of hopelessness, and you know that at root, what all of us need ultimately is Jesus, then the, the temptation is very strong to just say, well, you know what, this feels hopeless. Why not just let go of it? You know what? God's in charge of the politics. I'm just going to vote for something or not at all. And we're going to focus on changing individuals. Um, and, uh, you know, this, you know, it's, it's interesting because this debate is, is just so fundamentally old. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's such a, yeah, such a basic debate, you know, yeah. um, you know, you know, Socrates was very concerned about changing individuals and Plato comes along and says, you know, Hey, it's really good to change, um, uh, uh, you know, the hearts and minds of people, but if you allow these systems to continue and the systems are corrupt, then they're going to corrupt the people. And, uh, that same fun. And so he argues, you know, we've got to create a, you know, a Republic, a certain kind of a c- yeah. country that, you know, a nation that's going to be just, and that will help people be just. And, and we can't, and we, we're still living in that tension between changing the hearts and minds of people and, uh, you know, using systems that God has allowed, uh, in order to do justice. Um, it's hard. It's just hard. Yeah. And there's no doubt to me that, uh, you know, for the last at least 50 years, probably longer, that there's no doubt to me that the church and evangelicalism in, in particular has relied way too much on politics, has cared way too much about how politics work out and which party we you know, associate with and what policies we associate with and how we demonize others. There's no doubt that that's been the dominant problem, in, in my opinion at least, when it comes to this question, is just thinking if we just vote the right way and have the right people in office, everything will work itself out. And on the same hand, go in our houses, shut our doors, go to church a couple times a year, and maybe talk to our neighbors if we're both at the mailbox at the same time, right? And so I think that's that's the one extreme that has happened for a long time. And I think we definitely need to pull away from that significantly while also not just bailing out. And again, like you said, this is a question we've we've wrestled with forever. And I think right now we're kind of on the, the church by and large has been on one side of it. And we don't need to extremely correct the other way, but we definitely need to correct. I don't think there's any doubt about that. All right. So I'm going to provide a little bit of doubt. Just a little, just a little bit of nuance, maybe a little bit of doubt. So nuance, it's, nuance weird. Me, Alan. it's weird. <laughs> this is why you wrote the book and I didn't. So, so, here's, it, it's a, so here's the thing is that on one hand, there's, it's definitely true. It's absolutely right that, that evangelicals, I, on our whole, on the whole, our identity has been wrapped up in our political identity, but, um, at least anecdotally, anecdotally, it feels to me that um, actual uh, teaching about um, common good, uh, politics in the churches is, is generally viewed as a no-no. I mean, you can talk about how abortion is bad, but, but, but it seems like, you now there are certainly some megachurch exceptions to this, but it seems like the impression I get is a lot of pastors are very hesitant to talk politics. And so I, yeah, that's fair. And so what you almost have is like this two tiered system in one sense, the, 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 the community, the culture, the evangelical culture, subculture, whatever, uh, is deeply Caesar identity wrapped up in politics. But the actual instrument that, that, you know, Christ has given us for guiding the church, which is the church, right? His word, um, 
pastors are very hesitant with, with some good reason, um, to even in Sunday school classes, let's say, you know, even if you, I understand not wanting to talk about it from the pulpit, we'll focus on the gospel. Sure. But, 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 it, but even in general, it's such a landmine that, you know, they kind of want to avoid it. Um, but I think it's created this power vacuum that it's filled by, well, I mean, in some cases, some Christian political institutions that are, in my opinion, a little unsavory, more focused on pragmatics than, than truth, goodness, and beauty and justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's weird. So what I, my stance right now is we don't need to sort of invest less in uh, politics as Christians, less of our time, let's say. Uh, we need to reframe the way we think of our identity in relation to politics. Uh, that's not our identity. Our identity is in Christ, not in the Republican or Democratic Party or the Independent Party, whatever. Um, but we also, I mean, I, I think the church needs to do a lot more <laughs> in this weird way, <laughs> um, a lot better <laughs> uh, uh, participation in politics, not not less. Because I do wor- worry that if we just if we retreat, then it's going to get worse. Yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a fair uh, that's a fair nuance. Yeah, when I when I raised up, you know, when I wanted to be a pastor and became a pastor, you know, I was raised and taught by pastors who were very politically interested and involved that, you know, the church is not the place to do that. You know, so I, I think that's definitely fair to say, like, local churches, by and large, are not doing that. Uh, but it is certainly the case that people in the pews have gotten that message one way or another, whether it's from their pastor, or maybe yeah. it's just from some of the Christian political leaders who sort of put themselves, you know, in the president's Oval Offices and whatnot. Maybe that's where, you know, like like Dan says, that's where the catechism is coming from. Yeah, I think the church has done a good job of that. I'm afraid, I am afraid that, that, that pastors are going to care less and the church is going to care even less. Uh, the local church is going to care even less. The church as the body of Christ, I think, has definitely been way too caught up in that. Um, but we we can't just go the opposite direction either. So yeah, I think I think that was a good that's a good nuance and a good way to put it. So you're welcome yeah. for my compliment there. I know that's what you were waiting you. for was for Thank me to you. affirm you. So. <laughs> it's the only reason I came on this. On <laughs> just this, for uh, affirmation. Talk yeah. show. People come to me for affirmation. That is just a thing. You know, I am a Barnabas of Barnabases. Well, Alan, we could do this for, I could do this for hours. I don't know if you could, but but I could definitely do this for hours, but we should probably wrap it up here. So thanks so much for hopping on and having this conversation with me. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. 